And tell me what's happening. This is Pyromaniac Mo coming at you with episode 29 of the Pyro Light Podcast. The music that brought us in today was a track called The Baker's Dozen from Galactic, one of the best rockin' bands coming out of Nolens. Stay tuned at the end of the show, you can hear the song in its entirety. Again, that is the band Galactic and the song Baker's Dozen. Alright, guys, got all kinds of great stuff going on over at Pyromaniac.com. We already have our 2016 draft kit out. That is over 20 tabs of goodness, including our strength of schedule. We've got our tiers. We've got the consensus tiers. Every ranked player has uh, pros and cons and all kinds of stats. There is so much stuff here that will help you dominate your draft, and it's also something you can use during the season, too. I'm always checking out different tabs that I use in season, and that's only for $20. That's the Pyro Draft Kit. Of course, we also have the Pyro Pro subscription service. Now, in season, this gives you access to all of our ranked players. We do a write-up for each player. And then, of course, you have access to the Pyro Mindshare. You can ask us any questions. We get back to you very quickly. And there's a resource toolbox. We are always packing it full of data and metrics you can use to dominate your league. And you have an opportunity to win a free subscription that's a $40 value to Pyro Pro. All you need to do is leave a review on iTunes. Any review left in 2016 has the opportunity to win a free year's subscription to Pyro Pro. We're going to hold the drawing in April, so make sure you leave a review. Heck, leave two. I don't know who out there doesn't have access to more than one email these days. Take advantage of it. Leave us a review on iTunes. Again, any of the reviews left in 2016 will be thrown into the drawing. We're going to hold in April for a free one-year subscription to Pyro Pro. Uh, Any other details you would like about the Pyro Pro subscription service? or the draft kit can be found on pyromaniac.com. All right, guys, I got another fantastic fantasy football talk for you today. You know him, you love him. Matthew Barry TMR. 
He is, of course, uh, the senior fantasy analyst over at ESPN. You can catch him on the uh, 06010 podcast. He's all over the television giving you fantasy knowledge. He is certainly uh, one of the giants, one of the titans in the fantasy world. Now, ESPN, of course, is the mecca, right? So they've got some rules. Now, as you know, I'm talking to folks in the industry often with these fantasy football talks. Uh, They share their thoughts on the fantasy football world. Well, as an ESPN worker... Uh, Mr. Matthew Barry, as all the ESPN guys, are a little limited. Any fantasy-specific talk that they do has to be on an ESPN platform. So, really, with this fantasy football talk, you're going to find the definitive Matthew Barry interview. So, we talk about his early career. There's some really cool stories, uh, some jobs that you probably didn't know he had, and sort of how he found his way into the fantasy world. And we go beyond that. Uh, We talk about some of his pieces, how he puts in his own life experience, and really we have a valid, cool conversation that I think more people should have. So Matthew, uh, we laugh, we cry with him, and of course, we love him. So without further ado, check out the definitive Matthew Berry interview. Now you guys can follow Matt on Twitter at Matthew Berry TMR, that is M-A-T-T-H-E-W. B-E-R-R-Y-T-M-R. Of course, I am Pyromaniac Mo. Give me a follow over on Twitter. That's just P-Y-R-O-M-A-N-I-A-C-M-O. All right, gang. Without further ado, this is episode 29 of the Pyro Light Podcast. I am Pyromaniac Mo, and I had the good fortune to sit down with Mr. Matthew Berry, TMR. Check it out. All right, Pyromaniacs, as I mentioned in the intro, I am fortunate today to have Mr. Matthew Barry TMR himself. Of course, Matthew is a fantasy writer, columnist, podcast host, and ESPN television personality. He is the main fantasy football source and senior fantasy analyst for ESPN. Matthew is also the author of the New York Times bestselling novel, Fantasy Life, which covers the outrageous, uplifting, and heartbreaking world of fantasy sports. Matthew Barry, TMR, how are you, sir? I'm well, sir. How are you? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. I want to thank you for uh, sitting down and having a chat with me today. It, uh, it's really my pleasure. So uh, uh, thank you. No worries. No worries. Now, always, always happy to help young and upcoming fantasy analysts. I am indeed all of those things. Now, Matthew, of course, most of us know you through your fine work at ESPN. Uh, however, that wasn't your chosen profession right out of college. So take us down that road. A young, hungry Matthew Berry graduates Syracuse University, and then suddenly that cold epiphany washes over you like a Springsteen. Your glory days are behind you. Now you actually got to live in the real world. What career path did you find yourself in right out of college? Well, I always wanted to be a sitcom writer. You know, I'd gone to, I'd gone to Syracuse University, and I had actually done a student sitcom there uh, and enjoyed that quite quite a lot. So the guy that I did that sitcom with for the student TV station, we did like 20 half-hour episodes over our junior and senior year, we moved out to Hollywood together and to pursue a job, you know, sort of writing uh, sitcoms. And I got a job first at a toy store, working at FAO Schwartz, um, you know, did some grunt jobs. And then I got a job as a PA, which stands for production assistant. And it's, you know, basically a glorified gopher, you know, so I was, um, 
you know, getting lunch, answering phones, Xeroxing scripts, and did that for about two years trying to make contacts when my writing partner and I were writing scripts. So uh, after about two years, um, and one of my one of those jobs that I did as a production assistant is I was the production assistant on the stage for the George Carlin show, and which meant in essence I was George Carlin's assistant for a year, um, which was a, an amazing experience yeah. and really cool. Um, he was a wonderful man. And uh, so, you know, I just, I made some contacts and wrote some scripts and eventually got into something called the Warner Brothers Writers Workshop. George Carlin actually wrote a recommendation letter for me to get in. And through that program, I was able to get my first sitcom writing job uh, with my writing partner, a guy named Eric Abrams. And uh, Eric and I got a staff writing job on the sitcom Kirk, starring former teen heartthrob Kirk Cameron. I'm sure you were a big fan. And, uh, I had a we, giant yeah. poster above my bed. Sure, of course. You and every other 12-year-old girl in America. <laughs> um, and so we, uh, yeah, we did that for a year. And then we, you know, we got an agent and we were, we were on our way. And so I, I, wrote, I wrote sitcoms for a, a number of years. Well, and at some point you, you were writing in, in Hollywood. Um, and I, I've got some questions there for you. But uh, what were some of the, the bigger projects uh, we might have heard of uh, that you were working on in Hollywood? Uh, you know, I, bigger projects you'd have to put in quotes. I mean, you know, Eric and I were, back then, um, it was one of those things where it was just really tough to get on. You know, the, the way I would explain it to my mom is this. Because my mom would call and say, like, well, why aren't you writing for, like, Friends or Frasier or Seinfeld? Like, those were the Roseanne. Those were the big shows uh, back when I was doing that. And you know, my answer was was like, well, that's like asking an NBA an NBA player, why don't you why don't you play for the Lakers? You know, yeah, somebody has to play for the Sixers, right? You know, what I mean, like <laughs> you sort of get drafted where you get drafted, and and we could just never every showrunner we ever worked for hired us again. Uh, we we worked consistently. We were good, funny writers. We could just never break through and get that that big hit show. We worked with very talented, smart, funny people that are famous on really bad TV shows. So we worked on Married with Children. That's our most famous credit, probably. But we worked on that show towards the end, so we certainly can't take credit for you know, the massive success that show had. Um, after that, we worked with a woman named Diane English who created Murphy Brown. But we worked with her on a show that wasn't Murphy Brown. We worked with her on a show called Inc., starring Ted Danson and Mary Steenburgen. Uh, we worked on a show with uh, Jimmy Burroughs uh, that wasn't Cheers. Um, uh, he was uh, the famed director, Jimmy Burroughs, wasn't Cheers, yes. wasn't friend. We worked with him and uh, guys named Fred Barron and Marco Panette on shows called uh, Union Square. Their big hit was Caroline in the City. Uh, and another show called Union Square, uh, Conrad Bloom, which Marco created after that. Uh, let's see, we worked with the, with uh, Fax Bar and Adam Small, the guys who created Mad TV. We worked with them on a show called Gary and Mike. So we worked on, you know, a number of like, you know, we work with big name guys just on, you know, sort of not the show that that made them famous. So it was, uh, you know, a bit of a struggle. Well, I'm curious as as to one story uh, you actually wrote, I believe, Crocodile Dundee 2. And I know there was a bit of, oh, hullabaloo, shall we say? There was some, quote, creative differences there. And I'm not sure, you know, exactly how much you can talk about, but what happened there with Mr. Paul Hogan and uh, Crocodile Dundee 2? What, what, what was the exchange? 
Well, it was Crocodile Dundee three, to be clear. So okay. It wasn't even it wasn't even the good sequel. <laughs> okay. Um, we wrote uh, its official title is Crocodile Dundee in Los Angeles, and you know I've written about this uh, extensively. And uh, if anyone wants to, if you're listening to this, chances are you're a podcast fan. I did a full podcast episode about this uh, with Paul Shears, How Did This Get Made podcast. So uh, people seem to really enjoy that. So check that out. But the short version of the story, my friend, is uh, in essence, we had just, my writing partner and I had just come off Union Square. Uh, it had been canceled in November. And the way television worked back then was you had to wait till what was called staffing season, so the spring after the networks announced their fall shows to to basically get another show. Once you were once a show you were on was canceled, you had sort of you had six months or whenever it was to kill. So we were sitting there, you know, we weren't going to get a job until May, and it's November. We've got nothing really to do. So our agent calls us one day and he says, "You guys want to get into movies one day, right?" And we're like, "Well, yeah, but we we've never really written a movie before." And he says, "Ah, don't worry about it." And he says, uh, you guys know who Paul Hogan is? And we're like, of course. He's like, you ever seen Crocodile Nundee? Of course. And he goes, well, Paul Hogan is a client here at the agency. He is interested in doing a third installment of the franchise. He wants to meet with writers to pitch him ideas of what that movie should be. I'm one of the agents in charge of putting writers in the room to meet with Paul. So if you want, I'll throw you guys in the room uh, and you can pitch to him. And we're like, yeah, but I mean, we don't really, you know, know what we're doing. He's like, yeah, you know, yeah, you won't get the job. Don't worry about it. But it'll just be good practice on pitching a movie. And, uh, you know, you need to start that process. So we're like, okay, it'll help us, you know, formatting a So, okay, so we said, great. So we go up and we watch the first two movies again. This is 16 years after the first two movies. And we know that going into the meeting with Paul Hogan, we've been given, there's two rules. It has to take place in present day, meaning we couldn't do it like two years. out. It had to be 16 years after the second one. And his real life wife, Linda Kozlowski, who had played the love interest in the first two movies, they met on the first movie, had to be in it. So we're like, okay. And we watch the first two movies and we go in and literally this is the pitch. You know, we spend maybe half a day on it, you know, and which is nothing. And we just basically say, like, look, you come to L.A. You've done New York in the first two movies. Why don't you come to L.A.? You get a job in a movie studio because, you know, you can talk to the animals or whatever. Um, turns out there's some bad guys there, uh, you know. Um, but in general, it's you walking around L.A. You've got a kid now with your wife that you've been with for 16 years. He's a little croc. It's sort of the, you're, teaching him, you're teaching him America, which obviously you don't know anything. So it's the blind leading the blind. You know, it's it's basically it's it's Beverly Hills Croc. Hey, it's Crocodile D. We'll make it funny. Don't worry about it. <laughs> Literally, that's the pitch. Yeah. It's a little more expanded than that, but honestly, not much more. We're like we're just totally half-assing this, and and he looks at us and he says, "Eh, you guys are the only ones who get me. You're hired." <laughs> and we're like, "Wait, what? What just happened? Like, are we being punked? Are we being punked here? You know, like." <laughs> Like, we literally didn't think, but apparently every other writer, and I think this is actually an important lesson in terms of whether, whatever it is, whether it's a job, whatever kind of job interview you're out there for, is not to overthink things. And honestly, it's it's a little bit like dating, you know, or anything else in life. You know, honestly, the less you want something, the easier it is to get. Because we didn't think we were getting this job. We didn't want the job. 
We literally just thought it would be funny to meet Paul Hogan. It'd be a funny story. So apparently every other writer had pitched him, you know, Crocodile D saves the world from a nuclear explosion. Crocodile Dundee in space. Like all these outlandish things. And we were the only ones that said, like, you know, the movies are what they are. It's just you reacting to things. We'll put you in some funny situations around L.A. And he was just like, yeah. right, great, got it. So then our agent was like, they want you to write the movie. And we're like, what, really? And then they correctly answered the question, uh, which was, wait, they want to pay us how much? So I say this, I speak to kids in colleges all the time, and I always say, like, listen, kids, if you're going to sell out, sell out big. So, yeah. you know, we uh, we took the movie. They were like, they'll pay you to write their first movie. It will get made. It's a lot of money. You got nothing else to do between now and May. Why not? So we were like, yeah. okay. And we ended up writing it, and, you know, it's not a good movie, but it's not terrible. It's very watchable. You can stick your kid in front of it um, and not worry about what your kid's going to see. Uh, it's just very bland. It's very vanilla. Um, so the thing that you're sort of getting at in terms of the dispute between us and Paul Hogan was yeah. the whole the thing, the, the whole uh, uh, deal, the, con the deal was is that the three of us were going to write it together. Paul Hogan wants, I wanted to co-write the movie with Eric and I. Okay. And we were like, fine, fine, fine. Believe it or not, Paul Hogan actually had an Academy Award nomination for co-writing the first movie. People don't realize wow. that. No. So he was a writer. He was a former sketch writer. And we said, okay. No. But obviously, like, we got there, like, the first day, and Paul's like, ah, he's sort of mumbling around, and we're like, um, hey, why don't we, like, Eric and I are just like, we can't do six months of this, just sitting in front of a computer screen with Paul Hogan. And so we just said to Paul, we said, tell you what, why don't we go off and write a first draft, and then you can read it and give us notes. Yeah. You know, and he was like, yeah, 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 because whatever. You know, Paul Hogan was a movie star at that point, multi-millionaire, multi-multi-millionaire. He owned 60% He owned sixty of the first movie, which made, in today's dollars, well over a billion dollars. So, I mean, wow. like, you know, he was a multi-multi-millionaire, worth hundreds yeah. of millions of dollars at that point. So the last thing he wants to do is be, you know, sitting there staring at a blank screen, arguing over jokes. So we said, great. So we give him the, we give him the script. He gave us notes. We gave it back. You know, we, we did that whole process and eventually we give him the script and he says, great. Thank you, mates. You know, I'll, I'll let you know when we're, we're, we're filming. We're like, great. So then all of a sudden we get a notice from the writer's guild that said Paul Hogan had taken our name off the script. Ooh. So the script was written by, instead of written by the three of us, yeah, it was written by Paul Hogan. And what he had done was he had rewritten the entire script, but he'd rewritten it in this way. So you, we might have written a scene that said, I'm making it up now because I don't remember any of the movie, but we might have written sure. a, screen, a, a scene that said, like, interior nightclub. You know, interior nightclub, Paul walks in and sees a waiter. Uh, and, and, and I'm sorry, Paul walks in and goes to the bartender. Give me a beer. He would then take that scene and write, you know, exterior day. Paul walks into a Starbucks. He sits yeah. down at the table and the waitress comes up. Give me a coffee. Now, right. every single word in the scene is different. But the intent of the scene, which is that Paul walks into an establishment and orders a something to drink, where then something's about to happen, is the same. And that's what he did. Every single 
he just basically, you know, rewrote every single word, but it was all like that. You know what I mean? Where he didn't make any substantive changes. And we normally wouldn't care, but we were in a um, uh, we were in a, a dispute with him because the contract we signed with Paul and Paramount to write the movie meant we needed to get writer's credit. In order, yeah. in order of, in order for us to get residuals, to get like an extra amount of money, like um, you know, in the in the hundreds of thousands of dollars, we needed to have writing credit on the on the on the movie. And the whole reason we did the gig was money. So once Paul basically took our names off the script, it became us or him. We had been totally fine. Like, look, let's just all share credit. We don't care. He didn't really do any work, but whatever. You're the movie star. You're giving us our first break. We don't care. We'll split it three ways. But he, once he did that, once he tried to take our names off the script, we had to be like, no, actually, we wrote the script. And so it became this whole dispute within the Writers Guild. So, and this happens all the time in terms of arbitration. So we went in and we presented our script. And a bunch of uh, three independent judges, all writers, looked at it and looked at our script and looked at Paul's script, you know, without names or anything like that. And they basically said, oh, you know, they ruled three to, no three to nothing in favor of us. And then Paul appealed that decision and he lost the appeal three to nothing. And then he appealed the appeal and he lost that three to nothing. So now down nine nothing, um, it goes out with our names on it. But uh, he still... I don't know why he went crazy. And then all the, on the entire press tour, he's trashing us saying like, ah, these guys got credit for the movie, but they didn't write it. And so we gave him this whole thing. We didn't really want credit for the movie. We were like super <laughs> proud of it. So now here's this movie star going around promoting the movie that we wrote this, but we're, you know, we're arguing for credit on it, and the movie isn't any good. And so the whole thing was a disaster and just, and sucked a lot of life out of me and just wasn't yeah. fun. And was, and was one of the episodes, uh, Jeremy to, uh, uh, to be honest, that uh, made me feel like I got to get out of show business, you know, because ultimately, as, as frustrating as experience as that was, I made a lot of money and a movie got released in theaters that had my name on it. Right. That's I mean, there are many, 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 you know, the majority, I'd say 75, 80 percent of writers that are even members of the Writers Guild. So not even counting the people that even weren't able to do that. But um, there's probably like 75 percent of the Writers Guild that have never had a movie made with their name on it. Like it's a yeah. really hard thing to do. And so I was just like, this is, there's, there's a couple other incidents as well that sort of added to it, but that was certainly one of them that added to me saying like, I, this is a high class problem and I'm miserable. I got to get out. Well, uh, I am a bit bilingual. For example, I know Foster's is Australian for beer. Right. Uh, I, I'm not sure what asshat is, ah. but uh, I, I've got a good guess. So if this experience kind of soured you, uh, how did you find yourself? What was one of the early fantasy jobs or, or sports writing jobs that you found yourself in? I'm sure you're asked all the time, you know, how did you get to where you are? So what was one of those, uh, those crossover periods when you said, you know what, I'm sour on this experience. I want to do something else. What was uh, that? How did you take that path? Well, so I've been playing fantasy sports uh, since I was 14 years old. I was actually in, I met recently, not, I shouldn't say recently, but I, um, uh, a while ago, because I work with him, I met Peter Wolf, uh, 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 Peter Wolf. I'm sorry, not Peter Wolf. Uh, I'm mixing him up. Steve Wolf. I met Steve Wolf. Steve Wolf is the owner of the Wolf Gang. And 
fans of the uh, the original Rotisserie League baseball book will remember him as being one of the, you know, in that book, one of the original, one of the, you know, founding fathers, right? One of the original Rotisserie League baseball members. And also there's a guy that worked here at ESPN named John Hassan who worked for the, uh, the uh, for Glenn Wagoner and um, Dan Okrent and the rest of the founding fathers. They tried to do a commissioner service. They, When the book came out, all these people wanted to start fantasy leagues. So they started a service where you could get your – they would do their standings. They would do your standings for them and fax them to you. Okay. This is before the internet, before computers. Right. So uh, I met with John, and he looked it up. And, and so I am I was actually the, the fat dog rotisserie league in College Station, Texas, that I was a member of and still am to this day, uh, was one of the first 50 fantasy baseball leagues in America. So I, I, that's how long I've been playing, since 1983. I'm sorry, 1984. And, uh, yeah, so I'm in a couple of weeks I'll fly back to College Station, Texas, for the 32nd annual auction of the Fat Dog Rotisserie League with six of the original ten members still in the league. So cool. uh, pretty impressive. Very um, cool. And so, you know, I, I love fantasy sports. I've been doing it all my life. Started playing my first fantasy football league when I was in college. In uh, 1999, no, um, no, 1992, sorry, I'm mixing up all my dates. Uh, I started playing fantasy football in 92. Um, in 1999, to answer your question, uh, there was a website called Roto-World, which I think probably all the listeners here are familiar with, and Roto-World was advertising for writers. And uh, they just had a link up, you know, this is, this is 1999. This is back in the days of AOL and CompuServe sure. and you dial up to get on the online and, you know, yeah. you've got mail. Like that was actually a novel thing. People got excited. Well, I've got an email. This is so cool. Like they, they made a movie, made a movie about, about, it. about it. Right. They made a movie yeah. about it. Right. It was like, that's how, you know, and so uh, I was on Roto World all the time and I, uh, you know, I emailed in. And I said, I'm a professional writer living out here in Hollywood, but fantasy sports is my passion. You know, I love it. Could I, eh, could I try out? Could I write a column on the side? Could I do something like that? I wrote about this in my book in, in a longer uh, sort of sequence here. I tried out for the sporting news, wasn't able to get into the sporting news. I, um, you know, they were interested in me, but they wanted me to move to St. Louis where they were based. And I just wanted sort of a part-time thing because I had a real job. I had met some of the guys from Rotowire, which at the time was called Roto News. And I was, you know, potentially maybe uh, was going to, I was trying to look, get my sort of weasel into there. Wasn't able to make that happen. But anyway, Matthew Puglio, uh, oh, so I write this email into Roto World and no one gets back to me. I send another email and I say, uh, hey, just following up. Did anyone read this email? No response. I send a third email, like, you know, three or four days later saying, Hey, can someone just reject me so at least I know somebody read this email? Right. No response. I had read the site long enough to know that there was a guy named Matthew Puglio who ran the site and or was one of the big writers there. And I thought he was terrific. He did a bunch of baseball stuff. And so I emailed him directly because his email was on at the bottom of his columns. And I said, I have an advice question for you, but not one that you probably normally get. And that is, uh, you know, how do I get a job uh, with you? You know, I, I told him the story. I, I've sent in all these emails. Can I, 
And he wrote me back and said, actually, I'm the guy that's supposed to go through all those and hire everyone. And I just haven't, it's been so overwhelmed and overflowing with uh, applicants that I haven't had a chance to go through it. He said, but I looked you up on IMDb. Married with Children is my favorite show of all time. So you're hired. Wow. And, uh, and I literally said, and this is something that I used later in my, you know, when I would hire writers for Talented Mr. Roto, I was just like, well, don't you want to, me to take like a test to see like, you know, how good I am at fantasy or how much I know or anything like that? And he's like, no. He's like, he's like, I'm happy to give you a shot. You're willing to work for free, which I was. He says, I'll throw it up there. He says, and if you aren't any good, no one will read you. He says, the readers will tell us if you're any good or not. He says, so I'll throw it up there for a couple of weeks. And, you know, if you're getting less views in week two than you did in week three, I'm sorry, if you're getting less views in week three than you did in week two, we know something's wrong and, you know, your your advice probably isn't working out for people. I said, sounds fair. And uh, the column quickly took off and people really liked it. And, you know, I think I got more calls right than I got wrong. And uh, I was on my way. And besides just, you know, getting things accurate in the fantasy world, uh, your writing really sticks out to me. And one thing I've always really liked, uh, Matthew, about your writing is, honestly, the non-fantasy content. You've done a great job you know, making pieces relevant to life. Uh, one instance that really sticks out to me is a piece where you really expose yourself. <laughs> I mean, now, Groucho Marx might say, that sounds dirty, but it isn't. Uh, but I'm talking about the article called uh, Some Things You Just Don't Forget. Now, this was a part of a weekly column, uh, your love-hate series. Uh, but it's not the fantasy content that was really intriguing to me. You revealed a time in your life when you were bullied. Now, we brandy about this word often. Uh, let me tell you, as a, as a high school teacher by day, uh, as a parent of, of beautiful, sensitive children, as a human, it, it's a horrific thing. Um, unfortunately, I don't think it's innate behavior. It's learned behavior, and perhaps that's a, a cultural commentary conversation we can have later. But sadly, many teens, they don't have this discussion. Um, what prompted you to reveal this, uh, this fact about yourself in a fantasy context, no less? Well, a bunch of different things. So first up, just start about the philosophy. Like, so when I started, you know, there were a lot of people doing fantasy advice and analysis, and you know, there's you know, thousands upon thousands more today. But you know, and I've written about this in my book. I, you know, I, I looked around and like I knew I wasn't, I couldn't outstat a guy like Ron Chandler. You know, I'm, I'm not Nate Silver. I'm pretty good with stats, but I'm not like those guys. And I've watched a ton of football in my life, but I'm certainly not an ex-player. I'm not an ex-coach. There are others that can break down film or talk X's and O's better than I can. Uh, you know, or back in the day when I was doing bat baseball and basketball, you know, guys that could, you know, look at look at a hitter's wrists better than I could or the, you know, the, sure. uh, you know, you know, what, you know, the guy, you know, ah, guys losing two inches on a seam or, you know, on a sinker or anything like that. Like that just, you know, I wasn't at that level. And so what I realized, but the one thing I could do better than anyone else was talk about myself. And so I thought, <laughs> you know, listen, you play the hand you're dealt. Right. And so I always thought that, that that was something that would humanize me and that people would be interested in. And I found, look, at the time that I started doing it, I'd get a ton of feedback uh, and pushback. I still to this day, you know, still to this day, I've been doing it now for, uh, I guess, 17 years. 
I've been writing professionally. I started at Roto World in 1999, so I've been getting a paycheck. You know, they they were pretty small back in the Roto World days. I think I got at my highest amount. I think I was making uh, 50 bucks a column at, at my at my height in 2004. It was the most wow. Roto World ever paid me. Um, but but I've been getting you know, I've been being paid by somebody for fantasy analysis now for 17 years. Sure. And uh, and so. Um, you know, I've always believed that there is only so many ways to say, start this guy, sit this guy. I like this wide receiver. I don't like that wide receiver. Here's why. There's only so many ways. We're all looking at sort of the same stats or the same film, um, you know, the same player base, obviously. And so I wanted something that would sort of differentiate me. And, and it's interesting. So I've been doing this for 17 years. You'd think at some point the people that weren't into it would get to it. But I can't tell you how many tweets or emails I get still that are like, Yo, no one reads your long, boring stuff at the beginning of the column. Just get to it. Get to the advice. And then I also get other readers that say, like, I, as soon as you get to the advice, I click off. And I get a number of people that re email me and say, I, I don't even play fantasy, but I like reading you because I like reading the opens is how I refer to them as the opens. And, uh, and then there's, you know, a lot of people that like all of it, that like the advice and like it. So it all ends up working out together. Um, so my belief is always... Um, you know, trying to write about myself. And, and so I start from that spot. Right. And, and then also to be candid, like I've got, you know, over the course of a football, football season, when you include like the preseason stuff, I've got like about 20 of these do, you know, one a week plus um, that I'll have about 20 articles that involve a big opening story. You know, like I'll do my hundred facts or something like that. Or the manifesto usually doesn't have a story, but um, you know, the rankings won't have a story, et cetera, but there are about 20 different times that I'm going to have to write, not going to have to, but like for my style. Right. So I'm always trying to, you know, I've been doing it for 17 years and for the longest time I did baseball and basketball too, you know, and so there's only so many stories. So anytime I find a story, I, I, I have a catalog of stories that I know I want to get to at some point or, you know, something will happen. I'll think, Oh, I want to use that. And the bullying story was never part of it, was never, ever part of that catalog. Like, I never wanted to write about it. But when the Jonathan Martin, Richie Incognito story hit, you know, I try to tie my stories into something that's going around or what have you. And, uh, you know, so I, um, I was sitting there and I was trying to think about it. And the, remember, so the first week that happened and it came out, I was like, I should write about my experiences. And I, I, uh, I got, I was going to write about it. I was going to, I was like, you know what? I should write about it. I should write. I've been holding on to this for too long. I should write about it. And I whipped out. I was too scared. I was just like, ah, what do people think? I don't know if you want to do this. You know, I'm a big, you know, I've been a big fighter for fantasy and, uh, you know, I've been doing it for so long and, you know, not one of these guys that sort of like decided to dabble in fantasy because, oh, it turns out that's where the money is. There are certain sites that sort of held fantasy at arm's length and now suddenly embrace it because, oh, that's where the money and the interest is. Uh, we've seen that with some sports and organizations as well. But there's specifically sports sites that have done that I've seen. And, and uh, you know, but I've always – and there are other people who sort of sneered at fantasy, kind of dismissed it. It's, it's nerdy. It's this. It's that. And I've always fought for fantasy in the, in the biggest way possible, right? And so uh, – 
And I've always tried to change the stigma of that. And that's one of the reasons why when I was sort of coming up that I would talk about like my dating life and talk about doing things with celebrities or doing stuff with, you know, pretty girls. It wasn't to brag, although some people thought that was bragging or, you know, egotistical. Honestly, my my thought, and I can see sort of with hindsight uh, how it may have come off that way. But yeah. my attitude was always was like, I don't want to be the nerd. I want to prove that, you know, people who do fantasy football are just like everyone else, that it's not nerdy. It's just, it's one of these things that people do. So anyway, and then, so I'm sitting there and that's sort of my, my thought process and my, my uh, background. And I think, boy, that doesn't really help the cause, right? Oh, wait. So the, the fantasy nerd got bullied in high school, you know, that's not helping the cause any. So I chickened out and at the last minute I wrote something quick. I forget what I wrote. I think I wrote a column about the name Matthew Barry, because we have another anchor here at ESPN named Matt Barry and the confusion. And I've always struggled with my name because it's, it's a fairly common name and I've been confused with different people. There's a, there's a famous, more, more successful than I Hollywood writer named Matt Barry. And so um, he's written on like Roseanne and Reba and Desperate Housewives and so I chickened out. I didn't do it. And then the next week, and the story kept going. And now there's text messages from Incognito, and it's going on and on and on. And I just think, I need to write about it. I need to write it. I want to get it off my chest. I can do it. I can do it. And I honestly, this is what's amazing about it, was I, usually I try to take, like, I'm doing TV pretty much every day of the week, and I do the podcast every day of the week. Wednesday's the one day during the year, during the season, where I don't, I do the podcast and then I'm done. Once I'm done with the podcast, all I do is love hate. I do the research for it. I pick out what players I want. I do the, I do the, you know, I, I start writing it. I write the open, I write the, the full thing. And it's a whole day process. Like I often, I started at, you know, 10, 11, it's, you know, it's 5,000 words heavily researched. And so it's like, yeah. I, uh, you know, I'll write till two, three, four in the morning. I've been known to pull all nighters wow. and I just stopped and started a bunch of different times. And finally I said, screw it. And I work on the, uh, I did it out of order and I just did all the players. And so I'm sitting there and it's due at 9 AM Thursday morning. And finally at 7 AM, I was sitting there and I had a black blank screen and, uh, I'd slept for a couple hours and I was just like, F it. And I just started writing and I just wrote one take, uh, which I don't normally do. I try to, it, it comes off, I'm sure as haphazard, but believe it or not, I actually work very hard at that haphazard, uh, conversational style. And, sure. uh, but this was all one take, just sort of one stream of consciousness. Here's that it just sort of been building up and here's how it was. And, uh, I turned it in, you know, and it's interesting, Jeremy, I'll say this. I've now written. Uh, like I said, you know, weekly column for 17 years. And I do not know ever when I turn something in, how something's going to react. There are times where I've written a column where I'll be like, man, oh man. Woo. Good job, Barry. That one's going to kill. People are going to love this. And then I send it out and people are like, eh, okay. And then there are ones where I'm just like, yeah, boy, I ran out of time there. This one's, eh. you know, right. hopefully they're, uh, don't look at this one too closely, kids. And people be like, oh, my God, I love that comment. It was amazing. You know, or ones where I just like, yeah, it's not a great story. It's sort of cute, but whatever. You know, um, I, I wrote a column a couple of years ago about buying my house. 
that was at the front of my draft day manifesto. That was a cute story to me. I just thought it was sort of a cute, funny anecdote. And people love that one. People come up to me all the time. That's when people come up to me and say, you know, Colm, you wrote that I love. That's one that comes up a lot. Hmm. Like, you just never know. So I had no idea what the reaction would be. And I was sort of nervous. And I'm just like, oh, like, like, you know, our blog's going to make fun of me or like, you know, people going to make me think I look like a wimp. And, you know, and it just goes to show you never know, because the outpouring from that column was nothing short of spectacular. And, uh, you know, I heard from all sorts of people that I'd never heard from before. And, you know, many people were extremely kind on social media and a lot of people tweeted it out and um, said very nice things. And I got unbelievable tweets and emails and texts from friends and fans. And, you know, I got these amazing stories. My inbox flooded with people that had been victims of their own bullying, um, much worse than not mine, much, much worse, horrible stories that just, you know, made my heart break, but also unbelievably flattered that people would share that with me. And so it was, uh, you know, I ended up writing a column the next week about sort of the, the effect of that column and just some of the emails from people. And, you know, it was really amazing and really cathartic. And uh, it remains a big issue for me, you know, a, 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 a cause that I care deeply about. And uh, so I, I appreciate you asking about it. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, Pyromaniacs, this is uh, Matthew Berry. You can follow him on Twitter at Matthew Berry TMR. Of course, you know me, Pyromaniac Mo. You can follow me on Twitter. And Matthew, you've been gracious enough to give me your time, but I just got to ask a, a couple follow-ups here. Um, being that we live in this world of uh, Twitter and uh, the, the ease at which we can communicate with people we don't even know, um, do you see this as still being uh, an even larger problem in the world we live in? I mean, I'm sure you, as a, a very large figure in the fantasy community, still feel the effects of sort of, you know, trolling or, or bullying um, oh, on, yeah. online. And, and what, is your response, what is your response to that? All the time. And, you know, I mean, I always, you know, and, and by the way, that bullying calm, if you ever want to know, like, especially because I'm known for this, I, I, you know, not something you'd be proud of to be known for, but <coughs> excuse me, I'm under the weather a little bit. Um, but I'm known for, you know, for blocking people. I'm quick to block. I'm, I'm quick to block uh, trolls. I'm quick to block people in the fantasy industry. Uh, you know, I do it all the time. And, and the reason is because the I think that's a form of bullying. I think cyberbullying is, is absolutely a real thing. It's legitimate. And yeah. people will say, like, well, how can some guy with, like, 200 followers bully you, Matthew? You're on TV and you have a number of followers, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm like, I don't care. about. It's not that the effect. It's not like some guy with an egg shape and some weird name, you know, that doesn't have the balls to, to put their own name or face uh, online bothers me. Oh, some guy I don't know thinks I suck or whatever. It's not about that. It's about life's too short to put up with anything from somebody. So that guy, that egg shape, feels the need to be negative about me. Like that person woke, you know, at one moment, for whatever reason, basically said, like, you know what? I don't like Matthew Barry or I don't like his work or whatever it is. And so that's fine. There's plenty of people who don't. And there's certainly people that I'm not a fan of. But here's the difference, right? So, like, I've, I've said this, like, I'm not a Kim Kardashian fan. I'm not. But, I hear so, you. you know what? I hear you. Right. But I don't, I don't follow Kim on Twitter or Instagram or anywhere else. 
it never occurs to me to send a nasty tweet to Kim. I just right. ignore her. I'm not a fan, whatever. I'm sure she doesn't know I exist. But you know what I mean? So so the point is, is that that egg-shaped person says, instead of that, like, I want to, I want to send a, a mean tweet to Matthew and the re or to whoever they send it to, right? And think about that. Why are you doing that? You're doing that to cause pain, right? To inflict pain on some level. Like, I don't like you, and I want you to know that I don't like you. I'm trying to, on some level, inflict pain or uh, or hurt or insult you. And you, like, you've never met me. I've done nothing to you, Mr. Egg-shaped guy. Um, all I've done is my job. ESPN pays me to give fantasy advice. I give it out. I give it out on Twitter, every other platform. And you don't like me. You're not a fan. You think there are other people that are better than me. Great. Go find them. Go follow them. No care. No worries. But that's my sort of take is, is that like life's too short for me to deal with that kind of negativity and to deal with somebody that wants to put that into the universe because there's so much negativity and there's so many bad things that can happen to people just living, period. You know, yeah. from uh, from from cancer to car accidents, you know, all the way down. That why you want to put extra negativity in the universe? And it's a small little thing, but like whatever. I don't need time. I don't have time for it. And I'll be, I'm specifically harsh on people in the fantasy industry because um, my sort of take is they should know better. Yeah, they should know better and. Um, they should know better about um, how tough it is to do what we do to predict the future. They should know better. Uh, they they should know better because you don't need to do it. Like I think I've had a pretty successful career in fantasy sports, regardless of whether you like my content or not. I think my career has been pretty successful in fantasy, and I've never done that. Go through all my tweets. Yeah. You've never, you, I've never taken a shot at a fellow, you know, like just out of the blue, like, oh, hey, Jeremy, your picks suck. Like, oh, nice call with Jeremy Langford or whatever, right? Right. I've never done that. I don't. I, I've managed to build a successful fantasy career without tearing anyone down. And in fact, just the opposite. I've helped many, many people. I've been very positive. I've been very helpful. The third reason is, is that because I've been in the industry for so long and, um. I'm very lucky and blessed, and there are a number of people in the industry that trust my opinion and, and feel like I have a pretty good eye for talent. Um, I'm very proud to say that, you know, uh, the, the Matthew Berry coaching tree, if you want, or people, the list of people that started at Talented Mr. Roto, my, my website that I sold to ESPN, guys like Brad Evans, Andy Behrens, Nando DeFino, Christopher Harris, uh, Brian McKittish, AJ Mass, Pierre Baquet, who now runs con fantasy content. For ESPN, Guy Lake, who oversees fantasy for Yahoo, uh, Will Brinson, who doesn't do fantasy but is now a senior NFL writer for CBS. He started his first online written stuff was for my site. So there's a number of people that um, that I'm very proud of that I was able to give a start to or a, a, you know a slight boost to their career, and they've gone on to do great things, deservedly so, because they're all super talented. So, but because of that, because of the success of all those people. Similar in the way that Matthew Puglio helped me and gave me my head start. People come to me and they say, hey, Matthew, what do you think about this guy? What do you think about that guy? And that way, one of the things I like to do is like when somebody says to me, hey, what do you think about this person? I can quickly go to my Twitter and I'm like, oh, actually, I blocked that guy. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I want to help yeah. somebody that's been a troll to me. But more importantly, <laughs> right. 
more importantly than being petty, and maybe that comes across as petty, but whatever, I'm human, I have flaws. But more importantly, what that says to me is that we can't, whatever company it is, like, here's an example. We just hired at ESPN, we just hired Mike Clay from Pro Football Focus. Oh, yeah, I've talked to him on a fantasy football talk before here. Mike Clay is fantastic. He's going to be a huge star. He's really, really good. I'm thrilled. I've had him on my podcast a number of times, a couple of years back. Um, I was happy to sort of elevate, help elevate his profile. He's done great work on a number of different platforms. And ESPN has hired him full-time. It's going to work with me and Field Yates and Stefania Bell and Eric Carabell and Tristan and, and the whole gang here. Okay. But before we hired Mike Clay, they came to me and they said, we're thinking about hiring Mike Clay. What do you think? And my answer was, can we do it yesterday? The guy's amazing. We should be doing this. I've been saying this for a year now, you know. Uh, and uh, yes, we should absolutely hire Mike Clay. Please, please, please. Um, but if not, if it's like, oh, I don't really know that person. Oh, no, because you know what it means? Because when ESPN or a major media company or anyone puts you in front of um, a microphone, when ESPN puts me on television or they put me on a podcast, what they're in essence saying is that, Matthew, we've spent a lot of years working up a brand trust and a brand loyalty to what ESPN means. And we are entrusting that to you. We are entrusting that, you know, even if I go off, if I do something on Twitter, if I'm at a bar at 3 a.m., even though I'm not at work, I'm on vacation, I'm still representing ESPN. Because if I get in a bar fight, if I do something stupid, the headline the next day is going to be ESPN's Matthew Berry does something stupid. Yeah. So ESPN knows that they have to trust their brand and their fans with me. Because they, that would, if I did something dumb, and frankly, you've seen some of my former colleagues do this, it reflects poorly on ESPN. It reflects poorly on our brand. It reflects poorly on my colleagues and, you know, and fantasy. And I take that very seriously. So I don't want to give a recommendation or I want to know somebody that's too dumb to know that, you know what, why on earth, if you're not a fan of me, but you represent some sort of website, right? Whether it's the smallest website or, 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 you know, one of our big ones, right? Like you don't see Brad Evans at Yahoo doing it. You don't see Dave and Jamie at CBS. You don't see Fabiano at NFL do it. You know, those are smart guys. Right. Because it's, it's the same reason that you don't see me do it or Caramel or any of these guys that do it. no. So my point is, is that well, what I would say then is when somebody's coming to me and say, what do you think about so-and-so? And I can sit there and quickly be like, you know what? Maybe not for you. I don't know what this yeah. person said to me, but this is not somebody that is smart enough to understand that they represent a brand, even if that brand is, you know, BillyBob'sFantasySite.com. Because at some point, you're hoping to get from Billy Bob's Fantasy Site to ESPN or CBS or Yahoo or Roto World or wherever. So that, those are, that's a long diatribe about why I do it, but I think it's important to do it. Well, I think this is an important conversation, and I tell my students all the time uh, we should be energy givers in this world, not energy takers. And, yep. you know, there's 160,000 kids that stay home every single day because of bullying. And wow. I think the, the fear is, that's from uh, ABC News, uh, the fear is that they're alone and, and nobody else, you know, understands them and 
but that's the one thing that unifies us. And so I think talking to you and having people hear, wow, you know, somebody of, of your stature has gone through something like that. I think that's reassuring to people and that's good for people. I think just having the conversation is far more, this is a far more important conversation than, you know, who to start on Sunday, uh, personally, I believe. No, and, I appreciate uh, that. I, I agree with you. And I also just think it's, I mean, I think we should be role models. And also, by the way, I mean, I'm just, I feel like, I feel like I try to, you know, I try to protect fantasy. And you know what I mean? Like when I meet, I'm, I meet players, NFL players, and I'm lucky to do so. And I can't tell you, they tell me they get 10 times as much negative feedback on Twitter from fantasy yeah. owners than they ever do from their own fans. Yes. You know, and, and I'm not surprised to hear that. Like Arian Foster goes down with an injury and he hears from for every one Texans fan that's just like, oh, great job. Thanks, Arian, whatever, you know, from every one Texans fan, he hears from 100 fantasy owners that are like, oh, you killed me. You know, well, Arian right. Foster just broke his foot or something like that. You think he cares about your fantasy team? Like, what <laughs> about his career? And by the way, Arian Foster's right. Yeah. Um, and so I just, you know, fantasy is supposed to be fun. It's a hobby that we play for fun. It's about camaraderie right. and community. And I'm all for giving uh, giving grief, giving crap, you know, to somebody else, sure. as long sure. as it's you're within friends. But like right. from people on Twitter, like, I don't know you. You don't know me. Arian Foster doesn't know you, dude. That's not good natured right. crap giving. That's that's just being an a-hole. Right. So. And like you say, we do it for fun. And uh, at the bottom, at the bottom line, end of the day, we're all human. And I think we just need to treat each other kindly and uh, respect one another. And I think I thank you for sharing that because I think it's going to mean something to a lot of people. And I, I encourage folks uh, to, to check out your writing, and in particular, um, uh, the, the bullying article. Now, again, that was um, some things you just don't forget. And just to end, you've given me such uh, an amount of your time, and I really want to thank you, but just to end on the, a lighter side uh, sure. where Obi-Wan resides... Uh, as we had a very important conversation, but in your book, Fantasy Life, you talk about, essentially, as the title uh, insinuates, you talk about fantasy in your life, and uh, kudos to you, by the way, on the book, but also on uh, your family, your uh, success. You've, you've come across a family in a non-traditional way, but heck, in, in this world, who has a, nu a traditional nuclear family anymore? How has fantasy uh, been good for the Matthew Berry Family, like uh, playing in your, you play in your own fantasy family league. Is that correct? And and, and how has that affected you uh, with your kids and your wife? Well, obviously, I mean, look, fantasy's meant everything to me, right? I mean, without fantasy football, I'm not at ESPN. If I'm not at ESPN, I don't meet my wife. Without my wife, obviously, I don't have my family. I think what you're referring to is, so, um, uh, so my wife and I, to your point, have it's a blended family. So. Uh, we share custody with a couple of our, of, of our kids. And uh, my wife had, uh, had three children uh, when we got married. And so, you know, technically my stepsons, they're my, I consider my kids, but you know, they're, yeah. I guess legally yeah. they're my stepsons. And so um, their stepfather is still, uh, I'm sorry, I'm their stepfather. Uh, their father, my wife's ex-husband mm -hmm. is still in their lives very much. So he lives five minutes from us. And uh, always had a cordial relationship with him, uh, you know, nice guy. And, you know, it wasn't like a super nasty uh, divorce that you see sometimes. Yeah. And uh, 
so we'd always sort of, you know, we got along, you know, it's not like I've seen some divorces where it's like they won't be in the same room with each other, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. So nothing like that, you know, uh, we'll, you know, if I walk into my house and, and he's there, it's not a shock to me. It's not like, Oh, what are you doing here? It's, you know, right. he's picking up the kids or one of them forgot their homework or something, you know? Um, uh, so, but anyway, we, you know, but it, so it was cordial, right. But it's always, it's a little weird. And so, you know, now we're married and we're living together and now all of a sudden there's somebody else living with their, uh, you know, living this guy, you know, I'm looking about it from the, the, the dad's POV. Just like now there's some random dude living with my children. Not random, but you know, there's a new guy living mm -hmm. and same thing. So and the kids didn't know how to act, you know, at the time they were 12, 10 and four. Yeah. No, six, 12, 10 and six, sorry. 12, 10 and six. Um, and, uh, so anyway, we decided to do the 12 year old wanted to do a fantasy football league with me. Can we, Hey, can we do a team? And I said, yeah, you know, he'd never really expressed an interest in what we, what I did before. So I was like, this will be fun. Great. And so, as I mentioned it, you know, we decided to do a, a friends and family league of, you know, all the boys wanted to play once, once my oldest said he was into it and, um, and my wife wanted to play. And so we decided to get the the boys and their friends and we're friends with their parents. We're going to do a friends and family league. And so, uh, I don't know, maybe a couple of days later, uh, we, we, uh, we're, we're at one of the kids games and I see the, the, the father and, uh, I say to him, I said, Hey, you know, um, we're, uh, on Sunday, we're doing this fantasy football draft, you know, parents and kids, we're going to co-own teams together. Don't know what you guys are doing. He has a, uh, his fiance. I said, don't know what you guys are doing, but if you want, why don't you come and play in the league and you can be our 12 year old's partner. You know, I use their, I use their names in the conversation. I don't do it now because I don't like to publicize of course, know, sure. my kids' names or anything like that. But, yeah. um, and he was just like, all right. And so he came and, you know, it was a normal fantasy draft. Like I had not cheat sheets. We had the big sticker board and, um, you know, kids were with parents and, you know, it was great. And I wrote about this, but the coolest part about it is it's like all the parents were sitting around, we were all having beers and the kids were having fun and, and, you know, looking at each other's teams. But the, the biggest thing is, is it was normal. Like, and so because we share a bunch of mutual friends and it's a small town where we live in, it was like the first time where everyone was like, Oh, Matthew and Beth, me and my wife can be in the same room as her ex and his fiance. Like it wasn't weird. And the parents now, the kids now knew like, Oh, I don't need to walk on eggshells. I don't need to, you know, I can mention one in front of the other. Yeah. It's not like, so when we became friendly and now like, you know, it's very good. And we've had, you know, anytime we have a party, we have them over. Um, uh, they've come and hung out and just had beers. If one of the kids has a game, like uh, all three boys play lacrosse, like, you know, if we're at both of the game, we'll sit next to each other. Like, and that was all because of fantasy football. I think that's fantastic. And, you know, like we were talking about earlier, the world has enough ways uh, for people to be divisive and fantasy <laughs> is a way that brings folks together. And uh, at the bottom line, that's one of the things I really love about it. Matthew Barry, I really appreciate your time. Um, it, it's been fantastic to talk to you. I, I cannot thank you enough, sir. You're very welcome. I appreciate it. Good luck to, uh, to you and your entire crew there at the site. Thank you so much. And again, Pyromaniacs, you can follow me on Twitter at PyromaniacMo.
And, of course, that was Matthew Barry, TMR. You can follow him on Twitter for great fantasy advice and uh, just life insight. That's Matthew Barry, TMR, ESPN Senior Fantasy Analyst. All right, Pyromaniacs, until the next time, I will catch you on the flip side. Mm-hmm.